1: You know, as committed as Japan is to the Quad, they see the Quad as one of several venues through which Japan will pursue its regional interests. And you're seeing an, an era of fairly active Japanese diplomacy and strategic investment to to counter the challenges that China presents.
2: I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 24th, 2021. The Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, more commonly known as the Quad, brings together the United States, Australia, Japan, and India in strategic dialogue on everything from disaster relief to military readiness to technology and supply chains. Today, the leaders of those four countries will meet for the first-ever summit, a gathering which would have been difficult to even imagine just a few years ago. To understand what led up to this point and what could develop from it, I sat down for a fascinating conversation with three brilliant women who look at the Quad from different perspectives. Lavina Lee is a senior lecturer at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. Last year, she was appointed by the Australian Minister of Defence as a director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute Council. Tanvi Madan is a senior fellow at and Director of the India Project at the Brookings Institution, and she focuses in particular on India's foreign and security policies. And Sheila Smith is a Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a renowned expert on Japanese politics and foreign policy. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 24th, The Quad Summit, with Lavina Lee, Tanvi Madan, and Sheila Smith. Sheila, start us off here. Unfortunately, due to our scheduling difficulties, we were unable to include you in our last conversation on the quad back in October. So first of all, welcome to the club. Uh, I'm glad we're getting the full quad band together, but kind of bring us all up to speed on what the quad is why the Japanese prime minister, more than anybody else, was interested in pulling this this coalition back together, and what the Quad had accomplished up to and through the Trump administration.
1: Thank you, David. I'm delighted to join the band. Um, thank you for having me. So the, the Quad goes back to 2004 when the Indian Ocean tsunami was a huge humanitarian challenge for the region, and Australia, Japan, the United States... And India, of course, all had interests in trying to bring together capabilities to address the humanitarian and disaster relief efforts at the time. As a, as a kind of diplomatic framing for regional cooperation, it's waxed and waned over time. There's been interest and then waning interest in Australia. There's been interest and then some hesitation in India. But I will say for Japan, which is the, the nation I know best, the Quad has always appealed for two reasons. The first is, of course, these are the four democracies of Asia or Indo-Pacific, as we refer today. And second, it has uh, at its core a very, um, not only a vast geographical area where Japan is engaged, but also an economic connectivity that the Japanese really feel ought to be the focal point of developing the region going forward. Abe Shinzo, the prime minister who resigned last year, who was in office for eight years, was a huge advocate of the Quad as a leadership organization uh, that could bring an emphasis on the rule of law across this vast two oceans, three continents, and also should be able to speak out on values that Mm -hmm. the region shared. So I think the Japanese have ownership in some sense of the Indo-Pacific framing and a particular sense that they, they have a role to play in, in encouraging the quad collaboration.
2: Now, when you mentioned the, the framing of it, what did that framing include and what did it explicitly not include up until, let's say, last year? Sheila
1: So the the framing has been kind of a little on again off again again depending on which country you're looking at for the japanese it had it has always been a kind of a values focus, as I said, you know, democratic nations coming together to defend the status quo, if you will, but the rule of law, the norms of an open, a free and open region. And so that's important to Tokyo, but also the economic instruments of statecraft. And I think this is particularly the place where the Japanese have emphasized their own role, and that is trade, investment, infrastructure building, uh, connectivity in the broad sense of not only building roads and ports and ways in which the countries across the Indo-Pacific can come together, but also making sure that these two remain free and open and not be an exclusive region, but one that is deeply complementary to the global order.
2: Tanvi, when we spoke last on the podcast about this in, I believe it was October of 2020, we had seen a significant revival of the Quad, of course, during the Trump administration, but it was unclear yet that there would be a Biden administration. And then even when it was clear there would be a Biden administration, it was relatively unclear what would happen with this initiative because the campaign had shown little interest in it, certainly less than most other international issues. And I don't think there was a lot of confidence, one way or another, exactly how much would be invested in this institution. So tell us, what have we learned in the last several months about how the Quad fits into President Biden's desire to see the Indo-Pacific region shaping up and how the leaders of the other countries have responded in general terms?
3: Uh, Thanks, David. And it really is uh, great to have the band back together Um, I think for the Biden administration, when it came in, it had a particular set of goals uh, and challenges that it was facing. The president himself had made clear that given some of the challenges the democracies have been facing, particularly in terms of their image after their performance of dealing with uh, COVID, or at least a number of democracies, including the US, that it was important to send a signal and find ways of signaling that democracies could deliver. He also wanted to emphasize alliances and partnerships. And simultaneously, they came into office, the administration, understanding. And I think once they came into office, understanding even more how much the China challenge had intensified since they'd been, a number of them had been in the Obama administration. And as they thought about these, the Quad seemed to be a useful mechanism to help them with some of these objectives. And approaches that they wanted to follow so within a month of taking office you saw the administration very quickly and speedily host a ministerial of the quad uh, in february and then in march on march 12th they hosted a virtual uh, the biden administration hosted a virtual quad leader summit this was unprecedented there'd never been uh, a leader summit and it was unprecedented and striking because In January, the Indian and Japanese statements on the quad would not even use the word quad. And so it was quite significant that the leader, that the other three countries agreed to it as well. Um, For the administration, hosting this quad, um, doubling down on the quad, fit very much and was consistent with their desire to, as I said, shore up alliances and partnerships. Um, They would also, their kind of strategy that they followed uh, in those early months was to build a what they call the position of strength from which to approach competitors such as China. So you saw that the Quad and a number of other meetings with bilateral and multilateral partners preceded the Alaska altercation with Chinese officials. The Quad also kind of fit into and reflected the fact that the Biden administration wanted to focus on the Indo-Pacific. They also wanted to follow a Indo-Pacific First approach from which China policy would flow. And then finally, I think they were trying to find a way to also intensify uh, the relationship with India, which isn't an ally, uh, but they envisioned a very core um, role for India within this Indo-Pacific strategy that they had. And so the Quad provided a way to work with India beyond this kind of just the bilateral dynamic. And it also fit kind of with these broader themes that the administration had With the objective of helping ensure, as Sheila mentioned, kind of this vision that all four countries, quad countries, have of a free, open, uh, inclusive, uh, and I think they've now added secure and prosperous uh, Indo Pacific. That is their objective. They see challenges, all four countries, to that objective, whether it's China's assertiveness, whether it's COVID, whether it's climate change. And these countries have kind of signaled that they're willing to work together. I'll just say that I think one of the reasons that the other countries, uh, and India might have been hesitant a a while back to kind of elevate the Quad to the leaders level. But I suspect because of its deteriorating relationship with China, that helped it agree to this. But I think it was also a way for the others to uh, keep the US engaged, keep the Biden administration engaged in Asia. So this idea of locking in the US to the region.
2: Right. I'd like to, to talk about each of the the countries in turn along those lines, which is what what is each leader seeking to do with this Washington summit? And what are the the overarching goals coming out of it? So Lavina, I'll turn to you first, but I I think we have to do that on the background, of course, that each of the dyads within the quad have, have their own cooperation and their own contacts. So Japan has its own contacts with Australia and India has its own contacts with the United States, apart from the Quad Framework, of course. But in some cases, it's especially strong. And Lavina, of course, I'm I'm looking to you to talk about the Australia-US relationship because we're just coming off less than a week ago, I believe, the Australia-US ministerial consultations between the Secretary of State and Defense on the US side and the, the Minister for Foreign Affairs and Minister for Defense on the Australian side. And it struck me that the joint statement coming out of that, the first main section they talked about was Indo Pacific cooperation. And within that, they alluded to things like the COVID 19 vaccine production and delivery assistance program. They talked about the Mekong subregion. They talked about ASEAN. They talked about Myanmar. They, they talked about a whole bunch of issues. But the very first item in that very first section was the Quad. So, put some perspective on that for us. How does Australia see the Quad as it has shaped up to now, and what is it that the Prime Minister probably seeks to do at this summit and have coming out of it?
4: First of all, thanks again for having me on the podcast. Look, the last week has been a really quite a momentous week for Australia. I think the quad, for me, the quad meeting this week has been, is a bit overshadowed by the AUKUS announcement.
2: Oh, don't worry. We will be getting to that specifically later. But yes, that certainly feeds into the context here, doesn't it?
4: Definitely. So, you know, last week we did also have the OSMIN consultations, two plus two, uh, that happens every year. And all that you've said is correct. They, they do have a long list of, of kind of a statements, joint statements about all sorts of issues. But um, I think for me what Osmin really represents this year is a progression of our doubling down on the US alliance. So you can see within that that Osmin statement that Australia is really wanting and is willing for the United States to really utilize Australia more and to integrate our force posture with the United States even more than we had before. So if you look at the joint statement, it's it's talking about an openness to more rotations of troops in our Northern Territory, already we have two and a half thousand Marines that rotate through the Northern Territory every year on a six monthly basis. Mm -hmm. But our defense minister is talking about wanting more troops to come and rotate, about forward deployments of munitions more exercises between Australia and the United States. So I think what you should get out of Osmin this year is that there is no doubt that Australia is choosing the United States and that it sees that our alliance with the United States actually gives us more options. But beyond our bilateral relationship, Australia views the Quad as primarily an integral way of bringing India into the conversation. So Australia and Japan are allies of the United States. We already work very closely with Japan and the United States on all sorts of issues. But the Quad gives us a a means of drawing in India and if we're really talking about a new geostrategic construct, which is the Indo-Pacific, the Indo-Pacific doesn't work unless India is part of it. And I think in, in our Quad relationship, our weakest relationship is with India But that is improving and the quad structure actually helps us even more to to improve that bilateral Mm -hmm. relationship and to broaden it beyond military issues, but to also include things like technology, supply chains, tech development standards, cooperation on COVID vaccines, renewable energy technologies, etc.
2: Sure. One, One follow up for you. You mentioned the presence of the US Marines, I believe, primarily in the northern area, that's primarily in and around Darwin, am I correct?
4: Yes, that's right.
2: What is the perception there? Have you heard anything from reactions from what was effectively zero presence there, what, 10 years ago, to now a relatively substantial and growing American presence there? How is that going?
4: Well, look, I think um, the, the, the kind of dissenting voices are growing smaller. And I think that's actually largely because of the way China has been treating Australia, to be frank, uh, over the last year. So, you know, admittedly, Australia has been taking some very forward-leaning positions to counter or oppose Chinese policies over the last four or five years. So we, we were one of the first countries to support the Permanent Court of Arbitration ruling in 2016 and call it legally binding from the beginning. Uh, we've introduced foreign interference legislation that the Chinese government didn't like very much, and that other countries are now seeking to emulate. We've also, in the last year, I think this is what probably triggered everything was that we we called for a investigation into the origins of the COVID nineteen pandemic, mm-hmm. and almost within days, or almost immediately, that our Chinese. Uh, embassy here, uh, China's embassy in Australia, issued effectively a coercive threat against various sectors of our exports to China. And over the course of 2020, they made good on those threats. So Australia's lost about $20 billion of exports to China. And uh, this has included beef, barley, wine, uh, coal exports were uh, prevented from docking into Chinese ports. So it's really the deterioration of our relationship with China has accelerated over the last year. And the Australian government hasn't backed down on that. So we're, we're standing firm. And I think doubling down on our alliance, broadening our participation in the Quad is part of our strategy to deter and uh, shape Chinese behavior going forward.
2: If I can read between the lines, what I hear you saying is that United States Marines are, are helping to make up for the loss of exports of beef and wine to China by their amazing consumption of the same in, in the North.
4: <laughs> no. I, <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, sorry, further to your question earlier, I think the Australian public has been particularly affected by that economic coercive campaign. Right. right. So whatever doubts that there might have been about whether our strategy is causing that deterioration, I think there's a greater understanding that especially you may have heard of um, the issuing of a, a list of 14 grievances by mm-hmm. the Chinese embassy in Australia and they include all of the things about, that I've mentioned in terms of Australian policy and I think most of them are about Australian domestic policy. So from Australia's perspective, these these are Sovereign decisions that we make about how we we run our own country, and I think in 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 terms of public opinion, this has really galvanized the public to see the Chinese Communist Party in a different light.
2: Okay, Sheila, from the Japanese perspective what what do you expect that? the prime minister wants out of this summit meeting, either in terms of substance or in terms of optics? And what will the Japanese political elite and public be looking for?
1: So I think that, you know, because Prime Minister Abe Shinzo laid out this free and open Indo-Pacific vision, as both Tambi and Lavina pointed out, this is a moment of Real confidence, I think, for Japan Now we have a different prime minister. We can talk about this later, but he's coming to Washington, of course, at a time when his successor is uh, about to be elected in in Japan. So politically, he's not on the same, you know, the same position as Abe was when he was thinking and and talking to partners in the Quad. But I think Japan is very clear about its ambitions in the Quad. One is, I think Tomvi mentioned this earlier, is to make sure to anchor the United States In this coalition, and two is to build an agenda of cooperation that's not just for today or tomorrow, but that is sustainable and allows these four countries to move forward on key areas of cooperation. So I think the Japanese are quite happy that the United States has has initiated this uh, leaders setting to do that. I think the Japanese are also quite interested in making sure that the Quad is one of many frameworks within the indo-pacific that japan can center its own ambitions and its own ability to shape the region and this is not just necessarily containing china But again, to go back to the, you know, sustaining the rules of the road, so to speak, but also deepening the strategic cooperation that Japan has begun in a trilateral setting in some cases, first with Australia and the United States, and then with United States and India. Now Japan is much freer to pursue strategic cooperation with uh, New Delhi with Canberra on its own in this framing, this this you know quadrilateral framing of shared goals for the region. So you may you may understand Japan's ambition being just about Japan, but Japan is very anxious to make sure that the Indo-Pacific region remains a, an open and free arena for commerce, for trade, for investment for prosperity, including the infrastructure building and investment there. But but I think this is, uh, for Japan, I think one of their primary goals. You know, Japan has depended on this region for its security and prosperity in the post-war era, and they see China as beginning to erode some of the, the, the values that it has, you know, Japan has lived by. So this is a, a little bit of an existential challenge for Japan and a commitment by Japan to these, networks of cooperation. Uh, And the Quad is first and foremost in its mind, I think, these days, in terms of how to make sure that the region continues to move forward together. Can I say one thing, David? I think it's really important when we talk about the Quad also, and this is important in Tokyo. It's often in the news or the commentary these days that the Quad is attempting to replace the ASEAN or the ASEAN-centric multilateral institutions of the region. And here, Tokyo is quite sensitive to making sure that this is not perceived as, a, as an Indo-Pacific NATO or as an Asian NATO, but rather it's a, a way to complement the larger goals of building multilateralism across the region in a way that will sustain prosperity, and obviously security. So I think you see Japan also keeping a foot in this idea that the ASEAN countries, the Southeast Asian countries, also have to have a bridge in the, the agenda that the Quad is building. And the diplomats are working quite hard in, in Tokyo and around the region to make sure and to reassure the ASEAN countries that this is not an attempt to replace uh, ASEAN. Or to overshadow the interests of the Southeast Asian nations, but rather to bring capabilities and the capacity to deliver on these capabilities, right, to the fore in mm-hmm. ways that the ASEAN countries really can't. Sure. So, you know, as committed as Japan is to the Quad, they see the Quad as one of several venues through which Japan will pursue its regional interests. And you're seeing an, an era of fairly active Japanese diplomacy and strategic investment to to counter the challenges that China presents.
2: Thank you, Tanvi, to you for the Indian perspective. Uh, what is it that that Modi is seeking to get from this this visit and this first, for for many people, frankly, the first high profile view they're going to get of the Quad as an institution? What about the Indian angle on this?
3: I think, you know, as I was listening to Lavina and um, Sheila speak, I was struck by how much overlap there is in terms of how India sees both the Quad, but also the objectives that the Quad should be pursuing, the fact that it is embedded even for India within kind of a lot of other coalitions, bilateral relationships, trilaterals, participation and cooperation with ASEAN. And I think it is because there is so much overlap today that you've seen the Quad sustain. This has been very much a work in progress, uh, and I think you've seen it evolve step by step. Uh, the countries have had a better understanding of of each other's interests, uh, approaches, and 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 got to a point where I think the the vision they share and the approaches they share, they share, including in terms of how to ensure that ASEAN is reassured, is quite similar. I think from India's perspective, it is, the, the, the Quad helps it, helps it achieve several objectives. It's also reflective of, I'd say, four or five things in Indian foreign policy today. I think one is, and while we will not hear the C word China mentioned explicitly, the Quad for India in particular, but I suspect for some of the other Quad members as well, the Quad would not have been necessary or possible without uh, concern in India uh, about Chinese assertiveness right. in the region, particularly vis-a-vis China, but also the recognition in India that India cannot tackle uh, this China challenge on its own. And the China challenge is not just about the ongoing boundary crisis, the two countries are still involved in a face-off, but that they, for India, from India's perspective, it just has a fundamentally different vision of the region uh, from China, and, and the India's belief is that China wants a unipolar Asia dominated by China, and what India would like to see is a multipolar Asia. And the Quad is a mechanism, one of the mechanisms through which India can work with other like-minded partners to ensure that that multipolar Asia exists, where, as Sheila said, rules prevail, and uh, where, you know, might does not force its way through a number of different avenues and get its way. There's another kind of a few aspects the quad reflects for India. I think it, it reflects a fundamental, fundamentally different vision of Indian perception of American power and presence in the region than India had in the 70s, 80s and 90s. At that time, India used to think of American power and presence in the region as a problem. Today, it thinks about that as part of the solution in the region, if not essential.
5: Hmm. And
3: so this goes back to the anchoring uh, reason. And then I think, you know, it's the Quad would not exist for India today if it wasn't for a transformed... Uh, India has had a close relationship with Japan for a number of years. But as lamina said, the weakest link of the quad, the di- weakest dyad of the quad was India-Australia. And that has really transformed in the last few years, more so than any other Indian relationship. Uh, it's transformed for the better, particularly on the defence and security side. And it is driven in part, not entirely, but in large part by a convergence on China. And so I think what India is looking for the squad summit and i think it's important to remember this is not a us led grouping so these leaders do not come to the U- uh, to kind of washington thinking about getting something particular out of the the us this mm-hmm. is something they they've developed together uh, worked on together right. these initiatives that you will hear about are collaborative and so i think what india will be looking for is a sense of forward momentum on a number of these different issues. And uh, wanting to see the Quad deliver and play its own part in doing this, deliver practical solutions to regional problems so that they can show um, the region, which worries about the China aspects of this in particular, um, that the Quad is a grouping of like-minded countries that isn't the you know, anti-China exclusive security club that Beijing says it is, but it can actually be useful to them as well. So I think for India, the Quad, so kind of the gist of it is India would like to see the Quad and wants to contribute via the Quad to building a balancing coalition in the region, which it'll talk less about publicly. Uh, but also it sees the Quad as useful to help work with these other countries uh, and help build resilience in the region, which isn't just about Australia, India, Japan, and the U.S.'s capabilities, but particularly in terms of how they can build resilience in the region amongst non-member states across a, a variety of domains, uh, health, climate, education, as well as, as technology, economics, politics, uh, political systems, And then uh, security as well. though that is usually not what they emphasize uh, in Mm -hmm. the quad
5: setting. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month
1: or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance
3: Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
2: Lavina, let me ask you to follow up on, on one part of that, which is the security dimension, because the Quad, as it originally came out of tsunami relief, and it's emphasized things like reaction to COVID. And that, that is a large part of the institutional dialogues. We have to be honest that, that there is a China dimension that is as yet unnamed. And the four navies and their special forces are you know conducting military exercises in a way that could not have been imagined in the same way five or, or 10 years ago. And Australia has obviously been, been crucial to that. But it also intersects with the effort that you previewed earlier, which is the the effort to solidify the relationship with the United Kingdom and the United States in the new agreement and the acquisition of nuclear powered submarines, albeit to the displeasure of Paris. So bring those things together for us and talk about what the combination of the agreement with the United States and the United Kingdom and the willingness to participate in these quadrilateral military exercises uh, with the rest of the quad countries says about how Australia is thinking about military and security threats in both the Indian and the Pacific theatres.
4: Look, I think if you look at the trajectory of Australia's, I guess, relationship with the United States, uh, with India and Japan bilaterally and then by the quad, You know, our threat perceptions of China have just magnified over the last five years. Mm -hmm. And in in terms of the the submarine issue, so AUKUS, the big headline was the acquisition of, uh, well, by 2040, so we've still got a a long way to go, of eight nuclear-powered but conventionally armed submarines. And in order to do that, they also had to break in an agreement with France to provide conventionally powered submarines. So that's created a a whole uh, diplomatic problem for Australia. But I think, you know, we think that our our security situation is really deteriorating and the French contract was only going to be able to provide us with submarines that were probably substandard, but the the designs, uh, the, the costs overruns, this has been going on for more than two or three years. So when the French appear to be outraged, they talk about treason and being stabbed in the back. It's really actually from our our domestic perspective, there's been so many problems with these deals and there's a number of gateways in the contract and the French were very much aware that uh, their delivery was wanting. So I think there's a bit of a performance going on, but what you can say about the Orca deal is that it really represents... For me that the United States too understands that the situation is deteriorating and that they really wanted Australia to add to the submarine deterrent um, and that they need their allies and partners to step up and Australia is willing to to play that role. I think a, a less emphasised aspect of this deal is that it's likely that Australia will lease submarines between now and 2040 as in nuclear-powered submarines from the United States and the United Kingdom because we need to deploy them much sooner than 2040, and that there's all sorts of other military industrial aspects to this this deal, that finally Australia and the United Kingdom will be brought in within the US National Technology Industrial Base, which they had been included in, in I think in the last couple of years, but The regulatory hurdles had not been cleared. So now we can see that there's going to be a much greater integration between those three countries in terms of their cooperation and collaboration on things like cyber, artificial intelligence, quantum technologies, undersea capabilities and also their integration of their supply chains. Australia is also going to be buying a lot of equipment from the United States that that is going to really improve their ability to contribute to long-range strike capabilities across the Indo-Pacific. So we're talking about things like Tomahawk cruise missiles, long-range anti-ship missiles, but also collaboration on hypersonic missiles. So I think, you know, what Australia is trying to do is one, to more closely integrate our force posture with the United States to be able to assist the United States to Remain in the Indo Pacific and be a potent balancing force. So, to be a force multiplier for the United States, but to contribute in our own right. And I think going back to that idea of the weaknesses between Australia and India, one of the issues that Australia's always had is that India has often viewed Australia as not bringing enough to the table. That if you're going to initially, when India was thinking about reconstituting the Quad, Australia was really strongly pushing it, Uh, I would often hear the comment, well, what does Australia add? Why should we antagonise China when we can continue our our strong relationships with Japan and the United States and achieve a lot of our purposes? And I think um, what Australia is doing is really putting to bed a lot of those doubts about what Australia brings to the table within the Quad, in that we are a not only a Pacific power, but an Indian Ocean power. So for India, Australia becoming more capable in the Indian Ocean is a good thing for India and their concerns about Chinese encroachment into the Mm -hmm. Indian Ocean. And I think in the future, we'll see Australia and Japan really trying to push India to play a greater role in Southeast Asia and the Western Pacific.
2: Absolutely. I'm fascinated by, by one of those aspects in particular that you brought up, and I'd like to get Sheila and Tanvi to weigh in on this as well, which is the the supply chain, the, the technology side of things, because frankly, many of us are biased to look at this as a geopolitical issue uh, vis-a-vis China, or to look at this in terms of military exercises, or frankly, to look at this in terms of COVID vaccine deliveries. But one of the more interesting aspects and even developing just yesterday is the issue of technology and education and cyber issues coming up. We we do know from a draft joint statement that has been obtained by some media sources that they they are planning on talking extensively about technological development and supply chains that are vital to shared national interests, which makes sense given that the US and Japan account for roughly 30% of the world's chip making capacity. And India has such a thriving IT industry, but is heavily reliant on China for chips. So you put all this together along with Australia's role, and and you have a natural place for this discussion of supply chains in in the computer and technology world But the fact that this could even venture into cyber and space issues, which Japan more historically, India more recently have been expanding in, Sheila, what do you see as kind of the, is is there even a ceiling for the kinds of cooperation that could happen within the Quad framework on this wider set of issues than those core security elements that we tend to look at?
1: So this is a, this is what I'm looking forward to seeing come out of tomorrow's meeting because, you know, th- this whole question of resilience, uh, and this is something that was brought up in the February meeting in the virtual summit, and it, it runs the gamut of, as you noted, questions about supply chain vulnerabilities versus, Uh, You know, the way in which Beijing has been imposing economic coercion, the Australian case, of course, and the tariffs imposed on Australia has really left, I think, a pretty indelible impression on these four countries, the four Quad countries that, you know, basically believe that economic interdependence with China was a was a good, you know, had a good outcome for everybody. Um, So I think what you're starting to see is this idea that these four countries in particular but I would extend it to Europe and others as well, but that, that we need to start thinking a little bit more carefully about our resilience, our ability to deal with uh, regular, you know, frameworks of economic commerce, so that's supply chains, but also crisis responses, such as responses to the pandemic. So I think you're, you're, you're seeing a really interesting conversation emerge here, not just about the four countries of the quad, but this question of, you know, Without jumping to the conclusion that we are decoupling from China, right? but but rather right. something short of that, where do we see benefit in diversification of our major focal points of connectivity? Again, supply chains. I would say defense technology innovation is another place. I would say it's clearly cyber. Uh, is another space. And I think that you mentioned space, and I think that's going to be an interesting place to also to see the way that these four countries come together. So I think it's an appreciation of the need to shore up the, the resilience that all four of our countries would like to continue to enjoy, while recognizing that there are some particular areas that both have economic strategic implications, but also potentially military ones as well. Let me just say a couple words about Japan's experience with this is, of course, during the crisis, this is a decade, almost a decade old now, but a, a crisis with China over the islands in the East China Sea. This is what the Japanese call Senkaku and Chinese referred to as Jiaoyu, so this was a you know a territorial sovereignty you know spat. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the midst of that, Beijing slowed its customs processing of rare earth minerals, right materials, Uh, really sort of flummoxing Japanese manufacturing of all kinds of things. And it wasn't until that moment that the Japanese really felt that China would play that card. In other words, would would use economic integration as a source of political, right, um, strength in a crisis. And I think you start to see attitudes in, in Tokyo shift about, well, how much should we be completely open to, to in- economic integration with China, to what degree should we, you know, gather with United States and Europe in the case of rare earths, of course, in sort of urging China to to think about fair and equitable trade. And so that's that's the first time you start to see the Japanese take on seriously the WTO complaint right. that the United States and Europe had launched against China. So I think, you know, you move it today, you know, fast forward uh, a decade or more. And I think the Japanese are much, much more concerned about their supply chain vulnerability. And they're much, much more focused on issues, particularly in semiconductors, right? Where Taiwan plays a significant role
4: mm-hmm. in the supply
1: mm-hmm. of semiconductors to Japan. We're also seeing the way in which, you know, China-Taiwan tensions are affecting the Japanese consideration of the this question of resilience. So in the Quad, I think it's going to be very interesting to see exactly what issues will come under this rubric of collective action, if you will, on resilience. And to what extent is it broad-based trade liberalization, right? And to what extent is it more strategic issues, such as you noted, the space and cyber domains. So I think this is a really interesting space to watch the quad. I wouldn't say that my expectation is fully on the quad to move this conversation forward, but I think it's a very interesting venue for these four countries to explore in terms of what they're able and willing to do together to enhance their mutual
2: resilience. Right. Tanvi, same issue in terms of the, and I'll put it in terms of the overall issue, the overall technology part of the quad dialogue now elevating to the level of the heads of state uh, of the countries, the heads of government. What do you see being both the, the Indian angle on this from the IT sector, but then overall for the evolution of the quad, it, expanding into areas like cybersecurity, like space issues? How do you envision this playing out?
3: So, you know, I like the way you framed it in terms of what is the ceiling. And I don't think there necessarily is one, and that's one of the strengths I think of keeping the Quad as a fairly flexible institution. You know, there's there have been some who've called for this to be formalized in a very traditional way, headquarters, um, entire kind of offices, etc. Um, they haven't done that, but they there is some institutionalization, and, and along with that, there has been exploration of these new territories to think about. I mean, territories in terms of issue areas. To think about how these four countries can can work together, and I think in some cases, you know, they discuss issues, um, and it turns out that this is not the best platform for them because they're not the relevant countries. Goes to what Sheila was saying um, that it either it's not it can't be just these countries uh, on a variety of technological issues. I think they this does though bring together four countries. And this is where, from India's perspective, you know, it, it can, on a variety of technology fronts, not just IT, where obviously it's had strengths traditionally, but even if you think about kind of the more advanced technology domains, cyber and space, quantum computing, AI, this is where India can, can benefit from a security perspective, a political economy perspective, from a jobs perspective, as well as a skilling perspective. It can, it can benefit from... Work with the other Quad countries in this, but it can also bring a fair amount to the table. India, I think, is it's often forgotten has a pretty advanced space program. I think people might remember there was kind of a Mars rover that India put up in space uh, for for less than a pri- the price of the movie Gravity. So uh, this is this is areas where I think India can bring something to the table, and it can also learn from the other countries. And I think. One thing that the Quad can help do is also be one of the platforms where the conversations around norms and standards in these technology questions come up. Um, So not just the kind of development of the technology per se, but also the norms and standards. But I think, you know, what Sheila said is important. This is not necessarily the right platform for every discussion about technology or every discussion about, frankly, Um, all sorts of issues, the technology conversations, for example, will have to involve a conversation with Europe, for example. It will have to involve a conversation with the UK. And so I think, you know, uh, one of the things that I suspect the Quad will be doing, and we'll see more of this in the the joint statement, is which particular areas within the broader technology framing they've figured out uh, makes sense to talk about in the Quad format, versus others that the U.S. might decide or, or one of the other countries might decide, they actually want to have that conversation with a different set of actors, with a different coalition, because that's the coalition that is most relevant to those, uh, to those issues. I will say one thing from India's perspective, which is related to technology and office, I absolutely agree because it is related to, to bringing in the EU or Europeans and the Brits into these kind of broader conversations. Um, I absolutely agree that India will be broadly supportive uh, of AUKUS for the reasons laid out. It will uh, increase American and Australian capability uh, and kind of convey their, their commitment uh, to the Indo-Pacific in a way that few other things can. Um, and India wants to see, uh, you know, this will, this will also kind of increase cumulative quad capability in the region, helps to add to the deterrence vis-a-vis China. But I do think, you know, I mean, not just because France is a very close partner of uh, India's, which is why it has not come out and endorsed AUKUS. I think what India will worry about is whether they will, these hurt feelings um, will translate into. I don't think it worries that France will do less in the Indo Pacific. France wasn't doing things in the Indo Pacific for American interests or Australian interests. It was doing it because France is a resident power that has its own interests there. I think where India will worry about will this kind of damage or stall uh, or slow down uh, cooperation is on things like technology is for example you know the EU US uh, trade and technology council was supposed to meet and next week that has been postponed and so i think it it is in those kind of things that india would like to see all these coalitions um, of like minded states that are working on different issues technology is a good example to be moving in the same direction, even if not at the same pace. Uh, and so I think you know, you're gonna see these conversations take place across different bilaterals, different coalitions. But I think we've also seen in the last couple of weeks that these are coalition management is, is a high maintenance um, endeavor and it needs to be handled uh, with care. Otherwise it starts spilling over into, for example, uh, even what the Quad would like to see happen.
2: Lavina you get the closing thoughts here tonight and we'll resume the conversation i am sure not too long from now but for tonight i'm in particular curious about your take on how the the chinese will respond to this because this is different this this is something that the quad countries have resisted to this point it was inconceivable just a few years ago that this would become something with a a summit meeting of the leaders of this very loose and decidedly not alliance-like institution called the Quad. And suddenly in the wake of the submarine deal and the announcement of wider cooperation and joint military exercises and joint cooperation on technology transfer and illicit technology acquisition fronts, China certainly sees a target on it from, from this development and this summit. So from the Australian perspective since you brought up China and the the issues in the Chinese-Australian relationship in, in recent years, how do you see the Chinese reaction to this summit? And in turn, how do you see the Australians either playing against that or, or building on that in their efforts for strategic security?
4: Honestly, Beijing responds very predictably to all of these developments. So it's gone from when the Quad first reconstituted in 2017, to describing it in very derogatory and dismissive types of terms, and then over time continually refers to things like a Cold War mentality, uh, Asian-NATO, those kinds of things. But I think, you know, it's clear that there are all of these overlapping Institutions, newly formed institutions that are being created. So the Quad is just one of them, and as Sheila and Tanvi have, have made clear too, that there is there is now AUKUS. There's the Quad. There are various Quad Plus mechanisms. All I think based on a common perception that China under President Xi is a very different beast, and that the the challenge to the rules based order is persistent. It's comprehensive. It goes beyond military functions, as we've talked about. It's a a comprehensive challenge that covers a range of of areas. I guess all of these institutions are are broadly complementary, but things like the Quad really deal with that comprehensive challenge to China's determination to set things like regional discourse Uh, to promote its own authoritarian norms and values, to dominate the technologies of the future and to create a hierarchical economic order with the Middle Kingdom at the centre. So I think Beijing may bluster, but ultimately it has to, Mm -hmm. uh, well, I would hope that its leaders start to think about whether it used to bide its time and hide its brightness um, and that was a, a a technique to avoid countervailing coalitions building against it. and now it no longer hides its brightness. It has uh, a much more overtly coercive, aggressive approach to many countries that oppose various policies. and this has resulted in what they didn't want to happen, countervailing coalition's building to attempt to to shape and defend uh, or shape Chinese action going forward, but also to defend the rules and norms that uh, have made a large number of countries very prosperous.
2: And I will press pause there because I'm sure we will resume this again soon. Sheila, Tanvi, Lavina, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Thanks, David.
2: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please rate the podcast and use your social media to spread the word about the Lawfare Podcast. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo Studios is our audio engineer. Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.